Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. This episode is with Skeppy. I first found out about Skeppy when I was paying attention to what Jeremy Lee was doing at Sports Cards Live, and Skeppy's a regular a contributor. In fact, that's how he got this nickname, even though it's part of his email address and some of his other handles. But uh, thanks, sponsors, Top Spinini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Sergeant Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So thanks, Skeppy. We eventually talk about the... Not power of anonymity, but you don't have to give your name if you don't want to in a lot of aspects of this hobby. Nothing to hide, but uh, Skeppy and I enjoyed doing the, and I know his name, but that was good. So thanks, Skeppy, and here it is. The content I choose, it is very knowledge-based and people that have some experience behind what they're talking about. And it, when you said a thinking podcast or thinking content, most of the time when I'm listening to your podcast, I'm out on a two and a half mile walk, and that's where I do some of my, my best thinking, and I listen to your podcast. I usually get about three episodes in there, <laughs> which is pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoy Jeremy. I notice that you contribute to Jeremy pretty regularly, it seems. I think that's where I first heard your name. And then you were contacting me occasionally and I started accumulating a Skeppy pile. <laughs> yeah, I've got probably 15 or 20 topics lined up to send you, but I didn't want to just keep sending stuff when I knew you had a few of them already built up. Yeah. So I, I've got a lot more to send you. I think it's kind of like John Keating that I've had on where I finally just had to do an episode that was Keating questions because <laughs> he'd mm-hmm. accumulated so many, but I've been looking forward to this because I've, I've seen your interactions with Jeremy on sports card life. So I know you're a serious hobbyist, but how'd you get started and welcome to the show. <laughs> wow, Jim, thanks for having me. This, this is huge to be here with you from my history and where I started you know, to be here with you is, is amazing. I really started back in the mid eighties, like a lot of guys, 84, 85. And I with ball cards and garbage pail kid and was getting into it and understanding it. I was nine, 10 years old at the time. I just fell in love with it and got to the point where everything exploded into the late eighties. And one Christmas we were at my grandparents' place and all us kids were there, the cousins and everything. And my grandmother said, Hey, I've got some baseball cards that your grandfather's younger brother had found. And he had lost his eyesight back in the sixties. He was in his twenties. He had remembered where he had stashed these. So my grandmother had talked to him, fished them out and brought them out to us. And all us kids are you know, between nine and 12 years old. She starts putting these things on the table. And it's like Nicky Mantle and Yogi Berra and all these iconic names that we had only heard about. We'd never even seen a baseball card of. And it just, the light switch went on. And it was like this amazing, I want to move forward with this even more and learn more about it. More so than the other kids? I don't know. My cousins and my younger brother were really into it too. But I took a passion to it to where later on down the road, I actually created a relationship with my grandmother where we would trade cards. So they were still her cards. So she wasn't giving them to y'all. She was just showing them to y'all. She gave each of us a couple of them and then kept a lot of them. But the fact that all of those were there and we got to physically see them and then have some of them, it was unbelievable. You know, into the early 90s and understanding everything that was involved with that. And the hobby exploded at that time. Of course, you remember, and just fell in love with it more and learned more about it. Baseball was kind of the main thing that got me into it. And then I started getting into hockey and football and basketball. So I got very well versed in the different sports. Life changes and things happen. I got to mid 90s. I graduated in 94 and it was time to grow up and get a job and do some things. And so I did that for a few years. And by the time I got to about 1998, I missed the hobby and wanted to go back and learn about it more. So I went down to a local shop and formed a relationship with two new owners that were there. And one of the owners took a real liking to me and asked me to run the shop for him so that he could go out and continue some of his other business ventures. And so I ran a card shop for about three years. 
And so I got to understand how to buy, how to sell. I understood a lot of things about, it's not always about how much you can sell. It's about how much it's going to cost to replace that item, that type of mentality, those types of things. I also learned that everything is for sale. You can't just hang on to everything. You have to have that mentality. And so I learned a ton and I wouldn't trade it for anything to have that experience. And again, life changes and it was time to get married and to buy a house. Over the time that I had run this car shop, I had built up a pretty cool collection and I had traded up cars that were probably worth $50,000 today. And I had to wholesale them at the time to pay off some debt and get into this house for about $4,000. They're gone and no regrets, but that was the story. And for about 12 to 15 more years, I was in and out of the hobby, not really involved with it too much. I got in 2017, 2018, and that's where I got back into this like a lot of other guys. And started building up a collection and was really enjoying it, sent a lot of cards off to get graded. And then all of a sudden COVID hits and all these cards and everything I'd built up and sent off, they're all coming back and they had 4X, 10X. And it's like, I can't be hanging on to these cards when I know I could get them back later. So I sold a lot of those off. And, and then I started thinking of different ways of how I want to take my own new path with this hobby. And I started thinking of cards that have a lot more meaning to them rather than just a card that it's a rookie card. I want to find some additional value that is built into that card. That's particular to you, or it's an undiscovered gem that other people ought to be considering? I think both. I think that it's something that's very appealing to me. And if people saw the same vision I had on that card, they would probably find it appealing as well. It's all about how you deliver that idea or that that feeling you have about that card. And it helps get other people interested in it as well. Your nickname, I guess, is Skeppy. It's not your real name. I just kept hearing Jeremy Lee on Sports Cards Live for I could see that you were really tracking with that and a regular contributor. But what's the significance of that? Sometimes when people use an alias, it's to hide their criminal intent. I'm sure that's not the case for you (laughs) or for me, but there are just some reasons to be private sometimes. So is that a recommended thing? Because some people might be suspicious if they don't know your real name. Yeah, that's a great question. I had created my YouTube name was 8skep1 Productions. I started that because I wanted to share videos about various different topics and just inform people. And so that's how I created it. And I didn't change it. I just moved forward with commenting on some of Jeremy Lee's content. And he saw that name and he didn't know how to read it. So he just called me Skeppy. I know when you're looking for a trademark, copyright, patent infringement, and you try to see if the name is taken, my guess is 8skep1 was not taken. But how did you come up with it? Was it a random number and letter generation or does it have some special meaning? Is it the first letters of a song or something? It probably had deeper thought than it needed to be. I'm in Utah and one of the area codes in Utah is 801. 8skep is another name for a beehive. And Utah is a beehive state. So I used 8skep1, which was 801, and then productions. And that's how I came up with that. So does anybody question that I need to know your name or do you get outed or are you not obsessively anonymous, but that's just how you want to transact your hobby business? You think about life and everybody wants to track you down by your real name. You've got family, you've got friends, you've got business, you've got bill collectors, you've got everybody that wants to find you by your real name. When I'm in cards, I just want to talk about cards. And I don't need to be tied to my real name. I just want to enjoy it. And if people want to refer to me as Skeppy, then I'm completely fine with that. The name came from Jeremy and I really enjoy his content. And so I just went along with it. What I'm thinking too, is that when I do some stuff on eBay or ComC, I'm proud of my name. It's not that. I'm sure you're proud of your name too, but it's just less complicated if you just have a business name. So I think that's legit. I wouldn't want people to think there's some malintent. So do you think people could track you down anyway? Absolutely. Because yeah, I think they could track me down eventually as well. 
So I'm not playing super hard to get. I don't want to make it easy. Even if people would be more likely to buy something if they knew I was the seller, I don't really want to do business that way. Yeah. And full transparency, I did give you my information exactly. because, because there needs to be to. that transparency well, there for sure. You didn't have to. You didn't have to, but I'm fine. I have no problem with that. And I think there's some other people that do that, but it eventually people, if they want to know bad enough, they can find out. Certainly. But we don't have to broadcast that because you're entitled to have a private life. So I'm affirming you in that. Okay. If you look back in the late, late 90s, early 2000s, we have the explosion of numbered cards, one of one cards, parallels. And the graded community just exploded at that point. Okay, here we are 22 years later, and it's repeating itself. Literally, it's like we're going down the same path, just in a little bit different format. It doesn't have to evolve, but it's healthy that it evolves. If it's not a dynamic hobby, if it becomes too predictable, actually, if it becomes too complicated, that's a problem too. It needs to be not simple, but not ultra complicated. And I'm hoping that it's something where, because you started when you were younger, I started when I was younger that there's still a welcoming aspect for younger collectors. Again, they don't have to have the biggest budget, but they can't walk into a show and be completely lost. There needs to be something for them or walk into an LCS or listen to a podcast and think, what are they talking about? You had a question about repacking. There's so many cards out there already, and there have been repackers really for decades. Opsin has pulled in cards from some big dealers and stamped them and then put them back into the packs as, as inserts. I'm in favor of that thing that gets people thinking the hobby is a river, it's flowing, and the past is important and not to be ignored. So were you in favor of repacks and the recycling? Because it could actually solve some of the problem of overproduction. Because now if you were to grade some of the stuff from the overproduced era, some of that stuff now will sell in a 9.5 or a 10. I don't know if the past attempts have been that great. You look at how it started and it was this jumbled box full of a bunch of cards that was mainly players that you didn't really want. There might be a few stars or semi-stars mixed in there, but even the chase card, they were far and few between. And it was like capturing a rare insert. And I just don't know how well it has been done up to this point. There's things that the companies have done where there's a branding that the ops is standing behind that there's going to be an older vintage card. If vintage is 85 or 75 or something mm-hmm. in, in every pack or so many per box, but there's a lot of grab backs out there that purport to be recycled and you're supposed to get some good card in there maybe. And those are not branded. And there's some quality control there where sometimes maybe somebody's making money. The person that's for sure making money is the person that's making up the baggies. So those I'm not a big fan of when you really can't verify. Whereas with Top, they they have reputation to uphold or Upper Deck or Panini, any one of the companies, even Leaf. And that's the thing. I think there has to be a reputation and a name behind it to drive this product. You know, if Tops were to say, hey, we're going to make a product that is full of stars semi-stars, graded chase cards, and rare inserts from the past. This entire product, every time you open up something, you're going to get cards that are desirable. That's a big difference than a grab bag format or just a jumbled box full of common stuff with a few stars in it. It's almost like it needs to be promoted as a high-end product that has these items in it that make you want to chase. The way I would say it is that if there's not a brand standing behind it, I would be very much caveat emptor, fire beware. And I just wouldn't do it because why would somebody do that? Tops is trying to promote their brand, something that's an unbranded product like that. I'd be, I won't say necessarily suspicious, but there's so many ways to spend money and know what you're going to get. Grab bag, 
you know, that's for people that don't have the knowledge to look at a box of cards and say, here are the ones I want. Here are the ones that are, as you said, like my collecting interest. These are the ones that are appealing to me. Some of the 90s inserts and things like that may come back into favor. You know, just because they were pretty easy back in the day, they're still beautiful cards. Do you think it would be difficult to get people excited about something that was stuff of the past or even in the last 10, 15 years, if it was a combination of newer product mixed with older product and graded yeah. cards? And how interested do you think people would be in that? We have a new entrant as of eight months ago. Fanatics, I believe, is going to take your idea and they can give you the credit for it. That's fine with me, but they ought to be doing something like that. But the twist they'll put on it is they'll regionalize it. So if you're in the Midwest, if you're in Detroit, through their lid stores or the LCSs that they want to cooperate with, they could do some repacks that would involve all tigers. You know, but a random repack where you get a bunch of commons and you get a few good guys in there, I don't see that as appealing, even if it is tops. Now, if you're buying this year 2022 tops and there's some, some older tops cards put in there, again, that's tops. But fanatics could bundle up some stuff. And, and regionalize it. And then they stand behind it because they're all about knowing affinities for all their customers. They have customer intimacy down. Even a non-collector is going to be enticed if they're in Chicago. And it might be Blackhawks, White Sox, Cubble, Bears. Could be any of them or all of them. And so that would be cool to me. And that, that would break into an audience that may not be reached that's just curious about cards and be able to get a sample of cards. And they don't have to be new cards. They wouldn't care. And in the aftermarket, you can get some of that stuff really cheap. Yeah, Way below what the perceived value is and really what the value is. You could get it in a distress sale because but most of what you hear is about the expensive cards. And so if it's not an expensive card, it'd still be a good card. But if it's not a great card, you can usually get it at a pretty deep discount if you're just patient and look. Do you think there's products of the past that are undiscovered that people would find very appealing, but because it's been bare, lost in time, could they be rejuvenated or dropped back out so that people discover them and find them very appealing? Yeah, supply and demand. People are realizing this now. There's some low supply cards from 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever. But the market, it's lust for the new shiny stuff is overlooking it. So there has been some movement towards some of these undiscovered things that are tougher than the current price would suggest. There's always fluidity for people, unless people just want to go to the best of the best. And I think that's 1%. I think the mainstream of the hobby is looking for interesting stuff at a good price. You might have an LCS that takes this big monster box and breaks them up into groups that are all Utah jazz players or something that would be appealing to you. So I'm a fan of repacks done in that way and by those kind of people.